For scripture reading this morning, I will be reading from 2 Kings 5, the first 15 verses. You know, sometimes we we hear stories like the one I'm about to read, and we we think about the prophets of the Old Testament and how they were used by God. But they were just men, men who were faithful to what God has, what God called them to, as we should be. <clears throat> Excuse me. Second Kings five verses one to fifteen. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, 
So accept now a present from your servant. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we'll be considering uh, verses 1 through 14. Part of the Christian life is to be continually considering our place and our position before God. To always be Asking the question, is my faith strong? Is Christ at the center of my life? Am I a follower? And so this morning we want to look at the instruction the Apostle Paul gives Timothy. He calls him to guard the good deposit. He calls him to consider the gift of faith that has been given to him. And he gives him some particular imperatives, some things he ought to do to fan into flame the gift of God. Again, our text is 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Before we examine the imperatives or the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives Timothy, I'd like us to consider his language there of fanning into flame the gift of God. It has the idea of rekindling, of keeping alive, of being careful to keep glowing and hot. I'm sure many of us enjoy a good campfire. I particularly enjoy large campfires. And large campfires take some management. They take a a proper arranging of the wood to get the perfect balanced flame. And they take a continual addition of firewood to keep the flame the way you want it to both feel and look. For me, there's something quite um, medicinal almost of leaning back in a chair and gazing into a fire. But the fire needs to be managed. It needs to be shepherded. It needs to be helped along to maintain its shape. And the Apostle Paul is using that as an image to remind us that the gift of faith that is given to each of us, the gift of God that is given to each of us, is something that needs to be maintained. It's something that needs to be shepherded and tended. In this context, I believe uh, Paul is referring to the gift of ordination that he bestowed upon Timothy, uh, that Timothy received from God by the hand of Paul. And so for us, this gift of God refers to the supernatural gifting or the supernatural calling by which God equips all believers. He equips them with a gifting that makes them useful and productive in the kingdom of God. God's presence, as he is in us and among us, brings forth gifts that are meant to be shepherded and shared and displayed among the brotherhood and towards unbelievers. The Christian life It's not a matter of getting saved and then hunkering down until Jesus comes. It's not a matter of receiving a gift and then hoarding it and protecting it that we don't lose it. The Christian life is an allegiance received and declared in a new kingdom. We leave the kingdom of Satan and self, and we align ourselves with the kingdom of Christ. And under the flag and lordship of Christ, we take our gifting, and we go to work in the world, bearing the presence of God, and being his army of counter-cultural gift bearers. And so each of us, is to consider the gift that God has given us. And we are to fan into flame that gift. We are to rekindle it. We are to keep it hot. We are to keep the bellows going. 
He gives us particular language that speaks about that. We're to do so not in fear, but in power, in love, in self-control. Because this gift does not source from ourselves. It comes from God himself and it's given to us and so we can grasp it with power. We can display it with love. And because it comes from him, we can display it in a way that is self-controlled. It's a holy calling. It's not one that sources from us. It comes from God. And the Apostle Paul in this, lang- in this text says that I was appointed a preacher and apostle. That was the gift that I was given, that I was called to fan and to flame and to shepherd. These are not passive gifts. Again, these are not the instructions to take it and hunker down and to separate ourselves This is the language of mandate. This is the language of mission. This is the language of purpose. Develop and steward your gift and then go in the power of Christ and be his people in the world. So he gives Timothy this instruction and then he gives some imperatives, some instructions for how to do this, how to fan into flame, how to keep the gift of God white hot in our lives. And so for a key statement, I would say that if we're to keep the gift of God alive, we must identify the Christ, we must follow the word, and we must guard the deposit. If we are to keep the gift of God alive, we must identify the Christ, follow the word, and guard the deposit. These three are the essential elements of keeping a faith and a gift on fire. We must identify the Christ. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now, I very particularly use the word the instead of with. We have to identify the Christ. Yes, we do identify with Christ. Yes, we do take on his nature. But I think key in the middle of this is we must identify who the Christ is. The real Jesus, the real Christ in his day, and is again in our day an outcast. Jesus was incredibly countercultural. We see the primary way that that Paul fleshes this out here is is that Jesus embraced suffering. And so he says, embrace suffering like Jesus. That's a message that's compelling. Um, You don't, you know, have you seen um, advertisements that compel you to embrace suffering? No. Our flesh... Our society is geared around the avoidance of suffering. In fact, many Christians base their lives on the avoidance of suffering. You 
Many of us maybe became Christians because we were hoping to avoid a suffering. But we ought to embrace suffering. We ought to embrace the countercultural nature of the gospel of Christ, of him being the Savior, the Christ. And so Paul declares here a Christ-centered gospel, and we as well must declare and live a Christ-centered gospel. Because every single one of us will try to supplant the Christ, and we will try to make ourselves the Christ. We'll try to make our structures. We'll try to make our governments. We'll try to make all other sorts of things the Christ. But central at understanding our gift and our mission is understanding the Christ. And so we see the elements of that in this passage. We see Paul, as he often does, goes on to this kind of display of the gospel. He's trying to teach something, but he can't help again. This is the gospel. So what does it mean to identify the Christ? First of all, we recognize that the power of God saves us and gives us mission. This salvation, this mission is foreign to you and me. It does not come from us. It does not source in us. It comes from God. It's not according to our own flesh. He says very clearly there, it's not, it doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ. It's not according to our own works. And it's brought to us because of God's own purpose and grace. Whatever intention you have for your life, God has one that is better and eternal. And the more you can replace your own purpose for your life with God's purpose for your life, the more you will be in line with what he longs for you to be. We see that it was brought to life and light by Christ. So in this Christ-centered gospel, God brings forth his will into the world primarily through his Son. Again, do we understand how counterhuman and countercultural this message of Christ is? Every single one of us is born trying to save ourselves. And this mechanism is deeply shaped within us. It shows up, what about the age of one and a half? Me do it, right? And for the rest of our lives, we're saying, me do it. Let me figure this out. I can save myself. If I try hard enough, if I do enough, if I manage my sin enough, if I do enough good things, me do it. A Christ-centered gospel declares something very different. It declares first and foremost, I must have Christ do it. I must have Christ do it. If he does not come and die and bear my sins, I have no means of doing so. If he does not gift 
me with mission and purpose. I have no way of creating it within myself. I must have Christ do it. I must have Christ save me because I cannot save myself. I must have Christ change me. I must have Christ hold me. I must have Christ grant me a calling according to his purpose and grace because I will go and pursue things that don't deliver the kingdom of God. So I must have him bring that and give it and grant it. And so as 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It is a countercultural, self-denying thing to say that I must have the Christ crucified. The Jews of Paul's time were infatuated with their heritage and with their own ability to obey and keep the law. But Jesus charged these men over and over with being far from God. The Gentiles of the time were infatuated with their own power and with the freedom of the individual. Our day doesn't find, our day finds the same people. And Jesus confronts both. Jesus confronts both. Because he is the Christ. He is the one that can arrest us from saving ourselves and place us on a path that identifies with him rather than ourselves. That makes us be infatuated with him and not our own will and way. And so if we are to be the people of God in the world, we must identify the Christ. And we also must follow the word. Notice he says, follow the pattern of the sound words. The sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ. He, Paul is saying that these words that I have taught you ultimately come from Christ. And before you can follow the pattern of the sound words, you must know them. You must be familiar with them. You must understand them. You must seek them. You must search them. You must dive into their depths. But this is again rooted in the reality that Christ is the Christ. If he is the Christ, if he is the Savior, then his words ought to be the foundation for who we are. 
In Timothy's time, that meant reading the law, reading the written law that he would have had access to. It meant reading the letter from Paul and the other apostles. It would have meant sitting under Paul's teaching and people who have transferred Paul's teaching to him. That's how Timothy was familiar and understood and was able to understand the sound words of God. In our day, we've been blessed to have the word of God organized and readily available. It's in our language. We, of all the people of history, have unparalleled access to God's Word. Not only the actual text of Scripture, but the history of humanity's commentary and understanding of it to guide us, to shape us, to shepherd us. But I would argue that we, uh, of humanity, have fallen into the same trap of not following the sound words, of not seeking to know them, of not having them shake us and shape us to our core. And so we must read and we must consider the Scriptures. And we must read and consider much more than the Scriptures. Man's writings have helped us tremendously to see ourselves, to understand ourselves, to understand God, to understand His creation. And so we must read and develop our understanding of God, but let's be careful to read Scripture much more than we read man. But we don't merely learn Scripture to know it, we Learn scripture to have it shape us. He says, follow, follow the sound words. So as you dive into the word, as you learn the word, as it shapes you, as it reorients the world for you, follow it, obey it. So we identify the Christ, we follow the word, and we guard the deposit. By the Holy Spirit, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. If someone came to you at your house with a large sum of money, and they said, I'm going to leave this with you, I want you to protect it, I want you to keep it, and I and to be ready to use it for a purpose that I will communicate to you. Now, most of us would probably say, nope, not me. Don't want that sort of risk. But, but maybe he said there's something in it for you. And I'm guessing that you would buy a safe. You might build a hidden door in your house to put that safe in. You might put a couple layers of drywall so it's fireproof. You might install a Wi-Fi camera in that safe room that's linked to your cell phone so you can look at it. And you'd probably walk down there every evening and you'd go in the door and you'd open the safe and you'd look at it and you'd go, yep, it's all there. And you'd close it. If you had something of value like that, you would guard it. You would keep it. You would protect it. You would manage it. A 
Are you as concerned about the deposit Christ has made into your life as you would be if someone dropped off $10 million at your house? Do we understand that that is the value? It's much more valuable than that. You have been given the immeasurable riches of heaven. Again, this is rooted in the identity of the Christ. If the Christ is the Son of God, if he has come down from heaven, if he has purchased our salvation, if he has granted us his grace, if he has granted us eternal life, is that not immeasurable riches? Is that not a deposit we ought be guarding? And so I'd ask you about the gift of grace that has been given you. Do you monitor it? Do you consider it? Do you look at it? Do you train it? Do you feed it? Or are, like many of us are tempted to do, are we willing to just put it in the bank and they'll take care of it? And we'll just go about our life. You see, you could do that if you had that cash gift. You could find a good bank and they'll put it in a safe and you don't have to worry about it. But it's not that way with the gift of God to us. Nobody else can monitor and guard the gift that's been given you. Christ has given you something of immeasurable value. He has given you the opportunity to be who you were meant to be. He has given you the freedom to live openly before him. Is that something you're protecting? Is that something you're guarding? If we are to keep the gift of God alive, we must identify the Christ, we must follow the word, and we must guard the deposit. Let us pray. Father, this morning I pray that you would impress on each of our hearts the great value the great worth of the gift we have been given. Not merely the gift of salvation that frees us and rescues us from our sins, but the gift of meaning, the gift of belonging, the gift of purpose. And Father, as we Reflect, I pray that you would convict us of, of the areas where we've neglected the gift of God in our lives, where we've turned it over to the bank and figured they'll take care of it. Father, I pray with sober intention that we would fan the gift of faith back into life where we have let it go out. 
that we would see the desperate need to care for this gift, to teach it, to train it, to use it. Father, we thank you for your word that continually instructs us, that teaches us. Father, may we apply ourselves directly and carefully to the reading and understanding of your word, that it may grow our faith, that it may shape our giftings, that it may make us people of obedience. Father, we're grateful for the gift of salvation that comes through Christ alone. May our hope and our trust be in him alone. Father, I pray that you would do this in each of our hearts, in our communities, for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's have a song.